That is quite a song, quite a prayer. It really is. Uh, so turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12. We're going to finish up chapter 12 today. Uh, this is, um, I'll say it again, but it's you know, later on, it's a kind of a transitional uh, portion of the book of John. So uh, if you were to take the book of John and divide it literarily into two parts, it would end here. So the first part would end at the end, at the end of chapter 12. And uh, we're going to see that it actually closes on a kind of a tone of, of judgment. Um, it's not all that, that's going on in here, but, but he does kind of reiterate some things that he said, that Jesus does reiterate some things that he said uh, throughout, especially in chapter five. Uh, we're going to delve a little bit uh, deeper into that and see kind of the, the kind of the underlying theology, for lack of a better word, the theology that it's not just theology, but it's culture. It's pervasive in kind of the whole, the whole Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, the, the framework by which uh, or under which Jesus is operating and John himself is as well. And we're going to see the way that um, we're going to see the way that he speaks of himself as a representative and the way, uh, the way that that informs his mission, but then also the mission of the disciples, because uh, beginning in the next chapter, chapter 13, he's going to transition to um, away from ministering to the crowds and preaching to the crowds. And now he's going to focus in on the disciples. And that's really how we can discern and where the book, the structure of the whole book is that it, it focuses attention then right on the disciples and the way that their mission is going to continue once he, once he leaves. That's what he's preparing them for. So we're going to be in John chapter 12, 42 through 50. Let's go ahead and, and begin with prayer. Uh, Father, thank you for this time. Uh, we thank you for your word and the way that it has changed us and the way that it um, it ministers to us and strengthens us and, and uh, gives us understanding, gives us wisdom in this world. Uh, it helps us, Father, to, uh, to understand uh, where we are in the world and, and where we're headed. Uh, we just pray, Father, you would help us by, this, uh, by your word to uh, better understand what you're doing in the world and, and uh, not only the disciples' mission within it, but ours as well as we, uh, as we transition into uh, the second half of the book. May we see uh, anew and afresh what you were doing with them, your disciples, and what you intend to do with us as well. I just give you thanks now for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So John chapter 12, 42 through 50. Um, I will read this. I will read this again uh, as we come uh, later on in the sermon. But um, because I want to, I want to begin by kind of discussing some broader things that are happening within the text, and then uh, toward the end come back to the text and, and look at it in a in a more focused way. So, uh, John twelve forty two. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. We read that last week, but it, needed, it needs to be said for the context of what he is about to say. Uh, so you have here people uh, believing in him, but not following him. And so I think I think we'll see like within the within the book, if a person believes in him, 
it doesn't necessarily mean that they believed in him. And, and what there, there's an earlier passage in John where he says, um, they, many of them believed in him, but he did not believe in them. And he uses the same verb to talk about it. It's often translated as he didn't entrust himself to them. And I think that's what's happening here as well. These people love the praises of, of man rather than the praises of God, which means they're not willing to come out of the darkness into the light and follow, follow Jesus. And that's why Jesus cries out and says, he who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. See, that's what he's saying here. Look, come out of the darkness, guys. You have been in the darkness. Uh, you're not willing to confess me openly. You're still in darkness. That seems to be the point. If anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. This passage, as I said, brings to a close the first half of the book of John. And it brings it to a close on a sad and tragic note. But it is in the same key that John sang at the beginning of his gospel. Our minds are drawn back to the beginning of the gospel where John announced that Jesus had come into the world as the light of the world, as the very word of God, the very self-expression of God the Father in and for his creation. And that word by which he had created the world had now pitched its tent among men, bringing the very glory of God that had filled the temple and tabernacle so long ago back into the world. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us, John says, and we beheld his glory. In him was life, the life of the age to come, the life that would characterize the resurrection at the end. That life was the light of men. In other words, the life that he came to give would give light to everyone who received him. But he says, and this is the tragic part, he came to his own things, we saw, that is creation, which he had created through his word, and his own countrymen did not receive him. It is tragic, but it is scripturally expected, as we see at the end of this first half of John. But to as many as received him, he says, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe upon his name. This is the gloriously and scripturally expected note. All of this is in accordance with the scriptures. We saw last week how John and John, uh, Jesus and John returned again from chapter one to this theme of light, uh, in this theme of light, in order to say, I am the servant of the Lord, as was spoken of in Isaiah. The nations will now receive him. God is going to make some of the Gentiles his sons, as it says in the servant uh, of the servant in the second servant song, you are my servant, O Israel. And in addition to your mission to bring back Israel from exile, I will also give you the task of bringing in the Gentiles. I have made you, he says, a light 
to the nations. What Israel had been given the task to do within her historical mission, Jesus had done as the very embodiment of Israel. Now, I want to uh, pause here and speak just a moment about, actually quite a long moment, about what is going on here in terms of these servant songs, because that's where this, this, whole, this whole first half has kind of ended with this kind of climactic uh, representation of Jesus as the servant uh, who was actually headed to the cross. He's going to suffer and die for the sins of Israel. But I want to look at what is actually behind the, kind of the, the, the ideology that is behind uh, what's going on here. Uh, the way that it's presented, the way that Jesus is presented in the New Testament uh, and in particular the Gospels. The way that the servant of the Lord is portrayed in Isaiah and the theological framework that allowed Isaiah to speak of the servant in this way. This, this is what I mean. Why and how does Isaiah speak of the servant as Israel, yet speak of the servant as an individual? And then why and how does John then pick up on this understanding and describe Jesus as the servant, describe the servant as an individual? Now, this, this may, uh, may not you may not have worried too much about it, uh, probably not, but this has kept scholars up for a long time at night, thinking about how can this, who is this servant, right? Is he, is he Israel or is he some other guy, maybe Jesus? Uh, but most of the critical scholars won't go there. They'll just say, is this some individual, historical individual? But that's a real issue because the servant in Isaiah, which I looked at, we looked at last week, um, Jesus is being portrayed as the servant of the Lord. He is actually spoken of as being Israel. And then he's spoken of in Isaiah 50, uh, 49 as both Israel and an individual who's going to bring Israel back. And then in chapter 52, 13 through 53, he's spoken of as the arm of the Lord, an individual who is going to uh, bring Israel out from exile, but he's going to do it through the, uh, his own death. So uh, let me repeat these uh, servant songs for you. We're not going to look at every one of them, uh, but I want to just kind of discuss the framework. If you get a chance to look at them, hopefully you did over the last week, but if you get a chance, look at them, see what I'm saying about uh, them kind of bringing, they kind of fuse the two together. The servant is Israel and the servant is an individual. Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. Isaiah 49, 1 through 13, Isaiah 50, 4 through 11, and then the final one is 52, 13. 42, 1 through 9, 49, 1 through 13, 50, 4 through 11, 52, 13 through 53, 12. So have a look at those, and if you haven't had a chance to look at them uh, retrospectively and, and uh, see what I'm talking about here. In the servant songs that I mentioned last week, what we find in the first two is that they clearly refer to Israel as my servant. This has led, as you might imagine, to questions about whether and how these poems, these songs, can refer to a single individual if they are said to refer to Israel. And that is a legitimate question. How can the servant be both Israel and an individual? Is this possible? 
I don't think we have truly, most of us as believers have truly answered this question. We have rather chosen to ignore it and say, hey, we believe it's Jesus. That's it. But there is a way to explain this. At the heart of the explanation of it is what I would call royal representation. Because we don't live in a kingdom, this makes very little sense to us. But to all the kingdoms in the ancient Near East, this would make perfect sense. The king represents his people. And within Israel, it made perfect sense. This king was the very hope of the nation. And this king represented his people, and they represented him. We like to pretend in, the, in today's age that we live in kind of a pure democracy or something. But there's no way escaping the idea of representation. Every election cycle, we begin to think, if so-and-so is elected, he's going to save the country, right, on our behalf, right? Collectively, we think, oh, there's this one man, and if we could get this one man elected, he's going to save the country. That's how we think, right? I do. And so, like, reflexively, I think, ah, we long for this this Savior to come and, and deliver us. So he's going to do this, of course. He's going to do this on our behalf. That's how we think. Well, it turns out that this is quite natural, and it is built into our very being. The world consists of kingdoms and kings, and occasionally a queen, though we call them by different names. And that king embodies what it truly means to be that people. He represents the people and acts on our behalf. We often say, we, we, get what we, we get what we are, basically, because uh, in, in, a, like, in a democracy like we have, it's, it's representative. And so we choose what looks, well, we choose what we're given usually, but, but it often looks a lot like us, collectively said. Uh, so uh, he fights our battles, or at least this was the idea. He fights our battles with our enemies. Think about Goliath and David fighting Goliath and representing Israel on behalf of uh, uh, representing Israel against the Philistines. And he represents them to other nations round about. They inherit the fruit of his choices and he is their head. He is their leader such that the king can be said to be the people, to embody the people. If you've seen the king, you have seen the people. You don't need to see the people. You've seen the king. He is their representative. Or to put it another way, the king is the head and the people are the body. In the same way that the husband is the head and the wife is the body. She represents him to the world. She is her husband in a sense. They represent one another. This is true to the extent that the future king is actually called David. Now, this, I think, is a very important point that we see in in not just in Isaiah. You also see this in Ezekiel. I'm going to read a couple of these passages. The king himself is actually the king that's going to come and deliver Israel is called David. David has long passed from the scene. He's dead and gone, but he's still called David. Why is that? After the work of the servant is done in Isaiah 53, the prophet says, Lo, everyone who thirsts. Let him come and drink. And then he gives the invitation to everyone. Come and drink. Come and drink. And then he says, I will enter into a new covenant with him according to the sure mercies of David. And then the next verse says, 
This David will be a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander of the peoples, the nations. A new David, a new king representing the new Israel is going to arise and he is going to fight the battles for the new Israel. Incline your ear to me and come to me here and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you after the sure mercies of David. Indeed, I have given him, who? David, as a witness to the people, a leader and commander of the people. Now, you think about when this is written. Uh, this is long after David has passed from the seed. David is no longer. David can't come back and uh, save the people. But there's a new David coming, and that's his point. Surely you shall call a nation whom you do not know, and nations who do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. You can hear echoes of Jesus all in this. Uh, he is seeing himself as the one who is the new David. He is the one who is going to be a leader and a commander for the peoples, for the nations. And there are going to be nations that have never heard, but they're going to run to him. There are going to be nations that have heard, and they reject him. That's the idea. And he is the new David. He is the new king of Israel. He represents his people. So also in Ezekiel 34, a new shepherd king will arise like the arm of the Lord in Isaiah 40, and he will deliver the sheep. And Ezekiel 34, 22 through 24. Therefore, I will save my flock and they shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. I will establish one shepherd over them and he shall feed them. My servant, David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David, a prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken. This is royal representational theology. The same representative theology that describes the relationship between Adam and all humanity. He was king on behalf of humanity and brought sin and death into the world on their behalf. That is to say, we bring sin and death into the world. Now, we may think this is all a bit strange. But we, too, have representatives, as I've just discussed in relation to our governments, and we have to live with their decisions, unfortunately. Just one example from our world. Another example. How do we begin a football game? What happens? Coin toss. Who does it? The whole team go out there? Not only, only if you want to be inclusive as the whole team go out there. Okay. But we're not inclusive, actually. So we send one person out there. We send the captain out there. And he flips a coin on our behalf. And guess what? We have to live with it. We usually get to kick off. Right? So instead of receive. So that's, that's representation. He's the captain of the team. He goes out. He represents the people. And we have to live with it. That's how it works. This is how it works in ancient Israel as well. Think about David and Goliath. David, representing Israel, agrees that if he loses, all Israel will be enslaved. Actually, he knows he's not going to lose, so he never agrees to it. But that is the implication. If he loses, Israel will become slaves of the Philistines. But if he wins, what happens? The Philistines will be enslaved to Israel. You read about it. They, um, once, once Goliath is, is killed, they take off running, and, and they're gone. They're, and they get, a lot of them die, but... Uh, Anyway, they, they basically have to live with the decision of Goliath to come out and face David. And that's the way it works. This is the way things worked, and they still often work today. 
It's how all humanity can be said to be in Adam and how Israel can be said to have an inheritance in David. Second Samuel 20, verse 1. And there happened to be there a rebel whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. Benjamin, Benjamite. And he blew a trumpet and he said, we have no share in David, nor do we have an inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So every man of Israel departed David, uh, deserted David, and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah, from the Jordan as far as Jerusalem, remained loyal to their king. Now, David will no longer be the representative of the northern ten tribes, and they no longer have an inheritance in David. What David inherits, they inherit. What he, when he divorces them, which he's about to do in the next couple of verses, if you look at the next, next couple of verses, he takes ten of his concubines and he divorces them. And he makes them live as widows for the rest of their life until their death. It says it explicitly. Why? Why would he do that? They've been divorced. Israel, northern Israel, has been divorced. They have no share whatsoever in David. But Judah remained loyal to their king. David was no longer the representative of the northern ten tribes. Which means, actually, that they are not sons. The demise of the north will take a little while historically speaking, but it will happen in the time of Solomon's sons, and the north will lose their inheritance. Quite serious. No longer to be found again. They are gone. They are no longer a part of Israel. It is this theological framework that, that allows the servant to be Israel and also an individual. He is Israel's representative king, fighting her battles if they choose solidarity with him but leaving them to their own demise at the hands of the Romans if they do not. See if this doesn't work in the gospel. It's exactly what's going on. I'm, I'm convinced of it. He is representative in such a way that he can bear Israel's and the world's sins. That is, all who come to him can have their sins forgiven because they are in him. So what does this all have to do with this passage in John? In this passage and elsewhere, Jesus speaks in representative terms, offering to represent the people to the Father and the Father to the people. I am the light of the world is just that kind of language, representative language. He comes bearing the light of new creation, of resurrection life on behalf of the Father. He had received command, right? That's what he received the command to do, bring eternal life so that those who believe in him have life with the Father. For Jesus, it is not only about him, but about him who sent him. He's a representative, as he reiterates over and over again. This is representative language, and we should pay close attention to it. Follow me, be loyal to me, and you are being loyal to my father, and I will be your king, and I will fight your battles. Then Jesus cried out and said, he who believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me does not, and does not receive my words has, this, has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command 
what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. It's missional language, but it's also representative language. We might even say that it is priestly language. And in fact, as he will explain his mission more and more in the coming chapters, he will explain it in priestly terms. That's what he's doing, representing his people as a priest. Now Jesus' mission as a servant sent from the Father has authority. And it has authority because it comes from the Father. It also has consequences. This is what he's saying in the passage. There's one thing that we understand from hearing the words of Jesus. It's that there is pressure to act upon his words, and it is immense. One can't simply set them aside without consequences. That is his point. And in the transition of this book, what's happening is that he's leaving Israel to its own demise. That's what he's saying. He's going to turn to his disciples time has come and it is too late for Israel. If anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. But there is a judgment, and he's clear about this. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has this, has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him when? In the last day. This is the message. It will appear that it is inconsequential to ignore Jesus's words. And it is why unbelief is so insidious. It appears to have no consequences, but it ends with severe consequences. It appears that there's no immediate consequence aside from an unchanged life. If there were immediate consequences to rejecting Jesus's words, it would be more evident that Jesus is who he says he is. But that's not how the world is ordered nor how justice will be administered in the creator, creator's world. God is long-suffering, and the final accounting will come at the end. Within an inaugurated eschatology, as we find here in John and elsewhere, the end has in some ways come back into the middle of history. But there is a final awakening that awaits at the end. You can have life now, but life comes at the end in its fullness. Judgment is delayed, or at least doesn't seem to be happening, but in the end, coming, it will come. On this, the scriptures are clear. Here they are very clear. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Paul is quite clear on this as well. Those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness are, he says, treasuring up for themselves wrath against the day of wrath. This is not simply gloom and doom preaching. It is simply to say that there is a consistent teaching about what happens in the end. In classic Jewish pharisaical uh, eschatology, which Jesus and Paul both share, there is one end, the great day of the Lord, where God will raise the dead and judge them. Some will enter into resurrection of life, and others will enter into a resurrection of condemnation. It is as simple as that. That was the common understanding of what would happen in the end. God would raise the dead, judge them, and they would enter into life or condemnation. Now, part of this framework changes when Jesus arrives on the scene, but not the overall framework. The overall framework remains the same. This is very important. Important, I stress it, it's important to understand the whole New Testament. 
because all of them are, are speaking the same language. Jesus appears on the scene and announces that the future life of the resurrection, which was to be given at the end in the old scheme, in the pharisaical scheme of, of what was going to happen in the end, life would be given at the end. No one can tell in the present other than by obedience to Torah. Those who kept Torah, those were the ones who in the end would keep would, would inherit life. When Jesus comes, that changes ever so slightly. Well, it's a big change, but it changes, that aspect changes. Everything is now then focused on Jesus. That future life of the resurrection, was, which was to be given at the end and only at the end, when God would judge the world, is now available, available to all who present themselves to Jesus and embrace him. That's the change. That day of judgment remains where all will be judged, the just and the unjust. But Jesus announces that those who embrace him can be judged in the present and favorably by being in Jesus. Note again, the representative royal theology. He is the king and he can represent them and they can have what belongs to him. In him was life and he can give that life to whomever he chooses in the present. The now part of that can be obtained in the present ahead of the final reckoning. We can be presented, as it were, before the Father, being made sons who receive the inheritance of the new life in the age to come. In passage after passage, there is this already the now component that contrasts with the not yet component. See in John here, but also see chapter 5 of John. Understanding this will unlock many doors in the New Testament. See Romans 2, for example, where Paul lays it out um, in, in, a, in a kind of a different set of a different language, but uh, it's the same, same ideas. He says in Romans 2, 2, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O oh man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and impenitent heart, you are, and this is the key passage, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Is that true? He says it's true. It's true. We are treasuring up if we are if if we are wicked and do not obey the truth, but suppress it in unrighteousness. We are treasuring up for ourselves wrath against the day of wrath in the future and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Paul does not qualify this. This is it is true. In fact, he he explains it in a much more um, much more explicit pattern in the next few verses. He will give eternal life to those who, by patient continuance and doing good, seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. Tribulation and anguish. He repeats it again uh, from a different angle. Tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. This is classic Jewish eschatology. There is coming a day when God will render to each one according to their deeds. It is a day of wrath when God will reward the righteous with life 
and the self-seeking and disobedient with wrath and indignation. That's clear as day. But what about now? What about the present time? It's what we see in John, but it's transposed into a different key. Romans 3, 21 and following. But now, and when you see this in Paul, when you, you see this language, but now, he's usually contrasting it with in the future, but now, right now, now what? But now, right in the present time, the faithfulness of God to his covenant renewal plan, his righteousness, in other words, apart from Torah is revealed, being witnessed to by the law and the prophets. Even the faithfulness of God to his covenant renewal plan through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to all and on whom and on all who believe. For there is no difference for all sin and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely. He's still talking about now being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus in the present time whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, his covenant plan uh, to save the world. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were formerly uh, previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The future has come back into the present and justification by faith is now available to all who believe in Jesus future has come into the present. That's why it is by faith. It is in anticipation of the final day when God will render the verdict and say, righteous, you are righteous, and he will render the verdict of not guilty. Justification by faith is what Paul, what John is saying in his gospel as well. Those who come to Jesus are made full covenant members now and are transformed in the present to make Make their lives coincide with the judgment that will be rendered to all on the last day. That's amazing. That's what the promise is about. There was a judgment coming. There is a judgment coming in the end. And it is going to include all people. But you who are in Christ, we who are in Christ can have that judgment rendered null and void in the present by faith. Summed up in Romans 6.22. But now, having been set free from sin, having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness. And in the end, everlasting life, as John says. But now we have been delivered from the law, he says in chapter 7, verse 6, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not by the oldness of the letter. Justification by faith is so that your life and my life can be brought into congruence with the verdict that's going to be issued on the last day. On the basis of, what does he say? There is coming a day when God will render to everyone, not just unbelievers, but to everyone according to their deeds. And the Spirit is going to make us into, bring us into conformity with that judgment on the last day. When Paul says, but now, that is what he is speaking about. The verdict of the future judgment can be issued in the present over faith and on the basis of Jesus's faithfulness to the divine plan for Israel and the world. And it is on our behalf, a positive verdict. The verdict is the same as the commandment, eternal life. And that's what this passage in John is about. 
Many people just assume that the Gospels don't say much, if anything, about justification by faith, but John certainly does, just not in the same terms as Paul uses, for the very simple reason that justification by faith is the terminology that Paul uses to describe how Gentiles can be incorporated into the people of God from outside the covenant. Paul fleshed out this terminology for mainly a Jewish audience, a Gentile audience. John simply operated from a, Gentile, a Jewish worldview in keeping with the words of Jesus, because that's who Jesus's ministry was to. Later, however, as he wrote in the epistle of 1 John, he uses language similar to Paul's justification by faith language. 1 John 3.1, so we read this past week. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. This is the now time that we would be called or might be called children of God. And we are, he assures us, not just in the future. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him, right? This is the present time. First John 3, 1 uh, through 5. The Father has, has bestowed on us great love by calling us sons of God. And indeed we are. For this reason, the world does not know us in the present because it does not know him. Beloved, now, he says, we are children of God, and not yet it has appeared what we will be. We know, what, we know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. There it is, the now. Now we are children of God, but we don't yet know what we will look like. We know this much, we know this much though. When he appears, we will be like him. And then he goes on to base all Christian conduct on what he just said. And everyone who has this hope, what is the hope? That in the end, we will be like him. Now we are called children of God. In the end, we will truly be children of God. And we have fixed our hope upon this. When we do this, we purify ourselves just as he is pure. This is the foundation for all ethics in Christianity. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. This is the foundation for all Christian ethics. Based on what is to come in the future, we fix our hope on that, and we purify ourselves, just as he is pure. This is an exposition of the conduct that ought to be present in and among those who are called children of God, within the framework of an inaugurated eschatology. It's not simply set within a context of, you have been saved, therefore act like it. Though that's a crude way of saying it. It's a, it's a similar thing, but it's set within this idea of, in the present, you can have this in anticipation of the future. It is an explanation of what has happened in the present. We are, we are called children of God, Versus what will happen in the future. We will become like him when we see him as he truly is. And he tells his readers, and we truly are sons. We truly are children of God, lest they think that that is only for the future. It is the present reality of being children of God that leads to present purification on the basis of the future hope of being like him when we see him as he is. And now, little children, he says, abide in him. And now, listen for that. He, he really means it. In the present time, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him 
and his coming. You see the two, uh, his appearing. You see the uh, the two two aspects of it. Then now abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his appearing. Future judgment fades when we are in him, as we pass from death into life, John 5. And our lives look more and more like his, or at least they should. In anticipation of his presence, his unveiling, which is that day when resurrection and judgment will occur. Now, to bring it back to our current text, note what he says here carefully. And you can see how, um, how, you can see how he does this throughout the gospel. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Now, that doesn't mean that he won't judge the world in the future. It just means at the present time, judgment is being passed and left to the end. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him, the word that I have spoken. And it will judge him on the last day. There is coming a judgment. And Jesus himself has been appointed as the judge through his faithful life because of it. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command at what I should say and what I should speak. As the royal representative of the Father, Jesus has come and borne witness to the Father's plan to save the world, to give life, to give eternal life. Some have listened and will gain life. Others who reject Jesus, the emissary of the Father, have rejected the Father, and thus they have rejected life. They will remain in darkness. Though it is not expressly stated here, it is elsewhere. Those who express loyalty to Jesus will bear no future judgment. They have escaped it in him. But the very words of Jesus bear, will bear witness against those who reject him in the last day. The words, the words will serve as a faithful witness and evidence that God sent and testified on behalf of the Father through his Son. And they will testify about this very thing. Life, so full of assumptions, but so clear when we understand the framework above. It is summarized consistently here, concisely here. Jesus says that he knows that the Father's command is eternal life. And I know, he says in verse 50, that his command is eternal life. There's a little bit of incongruence when we hear that. What do you mean his, that the command of the Father is eternal life? And then he says, therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. <clears throat> this is more than simply getting saved and getting eternal life. Of course, it is about that. But it, it's more about, more, more than that. It is about having the resurrection life in the present, in the now time, in anticipation of the future judgment. Escaping the condemnation that will be given to those who reject on the last day. A living and living a pure and fruitful life in the present. This is how the this is how the story, uh, the first first half of John ends, with an announcement of judgment, not of a lack of hope, but of an announcement an announcement of judgment that those who uh, those who reject Jesus and His words will not enter into life. They will remain in darkness. Jesus has announced impending judgment upon the Jews of His day. This this is the important part in terms of the the broader structure of the book. He has announced at the beginning, John has, that he came to his own, his own did not receive him, but to as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. He is now announcing and departing from the Jews of his day, 
announcing that judgment has come or is coming upon the Jews. And he is now going to focus almost exclusively on his disciples as he prepares them for his absence and their continuation of his ministry in the power of the spirit. What we're going to see in the, in the following chapter, chapter 13, uh, the great foot washing that we, we commonly look at and, and seek to emulate it um, in, in a metaphorical way, what we'll see is that this begins and it, it radically defines what Jesus intends for his disciples to be to the rest of the world. In other words, his ministry is a ministry that was characterized by, we might uh, metaphorically speak of it as foot washing. And what, his, uh, what our ministry is to be, what the disciples' ministry is to be, and then by extension, our ministry to be, is to be, is to be foot washing. However, that can be applied in, in, all, of, um, in all of our lives. Uh, it means fundamentally that we have to redefine what it means to be a king. What it, me- what it, what it means to redefine, what it means when we redefine according to the gospel what it means to be royal, because God has, God has called us. He's called us to be royal. He's called us to be priestly, and he is then explaining what it means to be royal and priestly in, in the Gospels, and it looks nothing like what it looks like to be royal in this world, where we boss everybody around and push everybody around. It means to get out the, uh, the, the bowl and the basin and, and wash feet. So we'll look at that uh, in the next week. Thank you.